Welcome to this week's energy show. Now, changes in building energy systems are happening at an extremely rapid pace. I mean, I just think back 20 years ago, all you could do was put in a setback thermostat. And then 10 years ago, you could start putting in solar. It made sense. And people were putting in compact fluorescents or CFLs. And now solar and storage are kind of standard here in California. They're popular. You can't even buy an incandescent bulb. So LEDs are completely standard. EVs are becoming ubiquitous. And the new normal, the new excitement is all about building electrification. But the question is, how do you figure out what makes sense for your house? Should you electrify your heating and cooling first? Should you try some load shifting with incentives that you can get from the utility? Or should you install your own solar and storage? How do you figure that out? Well, my friend Steve Schmidt with Home Energy Analytics has the answers. It was his company has got software that analyzes your home's energy use. And you don't have to go crazy because you can get a lot of the data. He does this automatically by getting data from the utilities. And then he can coordinate with the utilities to find other sources of savings for you. So Steve was on our energy show about three years ago. But a lot has changed, especially with building electrification. So welcome back, Steve. Thanks very much for having me. All right, we got so much in common. We spent 45 minutes talking about other issues. But let's dive into the specific topics that we've got here, especially about home energy analytics. So give us an overview of what you do at home energy analytics. Yeah, so we have a relationship with PG&E where we help their customers reduce their energy use and their bills largely by analyzing their smart meter data. So we can do this remotely, as you mentioned. Once they sign up for our service online, we do an analysis of their last year's use of energy, both electricity and natural gas, and can identify which areas of energy use, which different types of energy use are particularly high for their homes, and then give them simple, usually very simple, easy, cheap recommendations on how to reduce those areas of energy use. And it's all about the waste. And it turns out in most modern homes, at least here in California, it's not so much about heating and cooling, it's more about the plug loads. And that is all the things plugged in around the house. And that's become a big, big problem. And it's generally very easy to fix that problem. Where we're heading now is to help the state meet its objectives for climate objectives for reducing greenhouse gases, is to help people get off natural gas. Turns out natural gas is just terrible for our climate, not only when you burn it, but when it leaks out of the pipes that go into your house. So the biggest impact folks can make now to reduce their carbon footprint is really to get rid of the gasoline in their cars and the natural gas in their homes. So lots of people have gotten energy audits. And, you know, at some point, I think it was mandated that every time you sold your house or something, you had to get some kind of utility energy audit. But how is what you're doing different than what you might get with an energy auditor coming out to your house with a clipboard and typing it into some software? Yeah, the vast majority of those types of services have been unchanged for the past 30 or 40 years, and they really tend to focus on the heating and cooling aspects of your home's energy use. So they'll come out and do a blower door test to see how leaky your house is, maybe do a duct blaster test to see if your ducts are leaking. They might check with an infrared gun to see if your walls have good insulation. Those are all critical for making sure you have an efficient home in terms of heating and cooling. But what we see not just here in the Bay Area, but all over California, is that we've had some really good building codes since the 70s. And most of the homes have got pretty good insulation, are pretty tight. The ducts work pretty well. You can always do better in those areas. But in terms of the low-hanging fruit, the stuff that's cheap and easy to fix, it has to do more with plug loads. And in terms of carbon reductions and getting much more efficient heating and cooling, 
plug loads are easy to mitigate. You know, unplug them, put them on a timer, all sorts of ways to reduce plug loads. Smart switches, Barry's holding up a wonderful example of a smart switch. They're so easy to use now. But in terms of heating and cooling, instead of investing a lot of money in more insulation or tightening up your house, you can switch to a heat pump. And a heat pump is four or five times as efficient as a gas furnace, So, for example. So much better technology. So California's mandated solar for all new homes, and eventually they're going to include storage. And they're moving more towards, for new construction, it's got to be in many places, uh, many cities, it's got to be all electric. Tell us a little bit about these things called reach codes. What are communities doing that are in advance of what's happening in California and, and certainly you know, light years ahead of what the country's doing? Yeah, I was involved in the reach code effort in our own town, and they are extending the state's requirements to be tougher, more restrictive on how you can build a new house. California's always had pretty good building codes, but these reach codes are extending it. So it's a reach and they're adding requirements such that in our town in Los Altos Hills, for example, you cannot build a new home that has gas furnace or a gas heat pump water heater. It was Berkeley that started this movement several years ago, but there's something like 50 or 60 cities in California that have now adopted similar reach codes to try and get away from natural gas in the building. So for new construction, do these reach codes significantly increase the cost of building the home and increase the operating cost of the home? Turns out it's just the opposite. And the only way those reach codes are approved by the California Energy Commission is if they are cost effective. So that has to be demonstrated by very detailed studies. Trick is that because these heat pumps are so much more efficient, there's less plumbing involved to put in an electric heat pump than there is to put in a gas furnace that requires both electricity and gas. So uh, it's actually uh, it uses less energy in terms of operating costs. And for new construction, it's cheaper to put in all electric at this point. So what are some of the customer economics for people that want to start upgrading their home with these electrification measures? Yeah, so that's a different and much tougher nut to crack. So for brand new buildings that are being created, being built, the state and many cities are requiring them to be all electric. But for existing homes where you have an existing gas furnace, you probably have an existing gas hot water heater, probably have an existing gas cooktop, maybe a gas dryer. So getting rid of those and replacing them with much more efficient electric equivalents can be really easy or it can be really hard. And a lot of it has to do with the building the layout of the building and the panel, the electric panel itself. Barry and I were just talking about panel upgrades, and it's a tough problem. Yeah. The good news is that this is we're learning a lot about this in the industry, and people are finding that just about every home can be fully electrified, but some are just going to cost more than others. And tell me about some of your experience just replacing your hot water heater, your oh. gas cooktop, or your old gas furnace. I'm just curious to see how it compares to what I went through when I did it. Yeah, so I think I'm trying to remember what the first step was. I think we've been driving electric cars now for a long time, so that was our first step. And I'm kind of I'm pretty worried about climate change. I had been a climate denier for many years, but now I'm pretty petrified about it. So in our home, we tried to reduce our carbon footprint, and it turned out transportation was the biggest component. So switching to electric vehicles was the first step. Then I applied for and got approved for a wonderful heat pump water heater rebate from Silicon Valley Clean Energy, which is my local electricity provider. And that was something like 3500 bucks. So wow. it was wonderful. So the heat pump water heater went in. Nobody noticed the difference. That was great. Worked perfectly. 
Then the next step, I think, was the induction cooktop. And my wife, she's the cook, and she was a little worried about that. So we tried it out first with a single burner induction hob. I I guess that's what you call it. But I had to get a couple new pans. And she loved the experience. So So let me digress here because we're going through the same thing. We had the aluminum pans we threw out. Or we didn't throw it. We gave it to our kids. And we had some stainless steel pans that are pretty good. We're shifting, actually. This is my wife's the cook, and she's, you know, likes to use the water. So we're starting to get carbon steel pans, and they work great. Even Lodge is like a clunky old cast iron. They make carbon steel pans really good. Basically non-stick the fourth time you use them. Mm -hmm. First three times are going to stick. After that, she loves them, and they were cheap. Yeah. My wife had a bunch of the old iron skillets, and they were great. So no problem there. But some of the other cookware had to be replaced. But she's loving. We got a Bosch induction cooktop. The thing is great. It's so much faster than the old gas burner. It's more controllable. It's easier to clean up. It's been wonderful. And And no fumes. No fumes, right. That's the new news that just came out from Stanford, I think, a week or so ago, that these fumes are really pretty pretty. Pretty bad for our health. So I think that was the next step. And then we also replaced our gas furnace with a big Mitsubishi five-ton heat pump, which has just been amazing. We were talking about it earlier. It just sips energy. It's so amazing. It's quiet. Whole home is the same temperature all the time. It's fantastic. We really like it. Yeah, I got the same rebate, basically. A $2,000 rebate from San Jose when I put in my heat pump water heater. And the state is starting to offer those rebates. And that's going to happen. And hopefully they'll have rebates for upgrading the HVAC. What about solar and storage? Have you done anything there yet? No, actually, I haven't. We have a lot of big trees over the house. So I have some solar thermal for the pool on a part of the roof, and that's been there since 2005. So I haven't moved that at all. And I found that our PG&E bill just keeps going down. So I just, before coming, I wanted to look through my old history, and I have PG&E bills going back to 1998, and they've actually gone down in that amount of time. Wow. And well, you've done, right, you've done all the right things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really pretty amazing. Yeah. So. And even though I'm a photovoltaic fan, I'm saying do not take out those solar thermal panels for the pool because there's no other efficient way to do it. So keep those there. And, you know. Silicon Valley Clean Energy and San Jose Clean Energy. I mean, you're pretty much running off of solar-generated electricity already, so that helps. So we talked about the incentives, and they're there, and you obviously, anything to do with solar and storage and even upgrading your electric service, you get a 26% tax credit. But tell me about what you're learning with these homes with smaller electrical services, 100 or 125 amps. What are some of the issues there to fix that problem? Right, so... At a certain size, maybe 50 amps or 75 amps, you really run into problems when you start electrifying. You're driving with charging EVs and then you're cooking and your heat pumps. But above that, there's a study going on in San Mateo County now where they found across 10 homes that they experimented with, all of them could electrify with their existing panels. So no panel up- upgrades needed. And one of the tricks there is to make sure that the new electric devices you're putting in where you're adding to the electric load are not inefficient. So for example, there's these Mitsubishi heat pumps we've talked about might use 15 or 17 amps, whereas some of the other options on the marketplace for heat pumps use twice that much. So talking about the new heat pumps like the Mitsubishi and I have basically the same thing. I was curious about how much power they're using because my old air conditioner would draw 60 amps when it would start. So I put an ammeter on the heat pump to start. It started at one amp. Oh, wow. And it was just the fan would start going slowly. And then even when I was heating in both zones, it was only using 11 amps. 
heating the whole house so at 11 amps, and it's almost nothing. So that's the, the exact type of choice that people need to be making. Contractors need to be more aware of that when homes are electrifying, that they need to think about this. So, for example, one of the real problems out there now is it's causing an impact on the grid itself is very high-speed electric vehicle chargers. Tesla and some others offer really high-speed home charging, and it is a huge drain on the grid, and it will require updates to the local transformer, to the neighborhood. This is a big, big problem. So most people don't need an extremely fast charger at home because you've generally got all night long to charge the car. One of the other issues to take into account is the size of the loads you're adding. Make them as efficient as possible. This whole new area of research is called the Watt diet. I don't Uh, know if you've heard that term, but it's a great term for reducing the number of loads you have. The great thing about the heat pump heating systems is the heat pumps use the same size circuit breaker as your air conditioner. So it was a 40 amp breaker. We didn't have to change that. They didn't even have to change the wiring going outside the heat pump. So upgrading to a heat pump heating system is easy and automatic if you already have central air conditioning. If you don't have central air conditioning, it's a problem. When it comes to the heat pump water heater, that requires a 30 amp breaker and a lot of current water heaters don't have any circuit breakers at all. So that's the only tricky thing you gotta upgrade. So the big news there is there are now 15 amp heat pump water heaters. And I think later this year, three different companies are coming out with 120 volt Ah, heat pump water heaters that can just use a normal outlet. So there's progress being made there. This is where there's a huge industry forming around getting homes off natural gas. And this is one of the areas where we'll find new technology very soon that will make it much, much easier to do this. So the other thing I'll mention is that there are new devices called smart splitters. So for example, in my home, I had a very constrained 100 amp panel and I was trying to do a lot of new stuff on that off that one panel charge a couple of EVs add a heat pump water heater add a heat pump uh, space heater and then an induction cooktop and the only way I was able to do that without upgrading the entire panel was to use something called a smart switch and I actually use two of them and it's a about a $400 device the ones I used from a company called Neo Switch and it really simplified being able to add these new loads off a limited panel And the way it does it is it shifts between these devices. It only allows one to run at a a time. So it's kind of a smart way to deal with additional big loads. So when you want to run two at a, if there's a conflict, how is the conflict resolved? A new thing automatically kicks it off or is there an app for that? There is an app, but it's even more basic than that. So these devices have two different plugs and one is the primary and one is the secondary. So in the case of my induction cooktop and my heat pump water heater, whenever someone's cooking, the water heater is not running. So you don't really need to heat water while you're cooking, (laughs) nor during peak loads, it turns out, peak periods. So the water heater only comes on uh, in those other times. All right, before we get to the vehicle-to-grid stuff, how do you see contractor networks evolving to meet this whole home electrification need? Is it going to be one contractor doing everything, or how do you see... You know, an HVAC contractor, a plumber, an electrician, a solar guy all, all participate. What do you see evolving out there? Boy, I, your guess is as, as good as mine there. I see a lot of new models coming about. Block power from back in New York. They're trying to electrify all 8,000 of Ithaca's buildings, and they're going to do the whole thing. But there's other companies that are just doing the assessment, the front-end part, to assess homes to see how they can be electrified and whether it's going to be expensive or whether it's going to be cheap. I don't really know how that's going to play out. I think there's going to be a lot of new options coming around soon. Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky thing. We've looked at expanding into HVACs and plumbing, and it's just like, all right, 
I need a different truck for plumbing and I need a different truck for HVAC than the vans we've got for our solar. So we're just sticking with anything that's electrical. Let's talk a little bit about vehicle to grid. Tell me about what you see happening there and your charging habits. Because I think you, you said you have two EVs or three EVs. Yeah, we have two cars and one electric motorcycle and they're all they're all charged at home. So what I see is that when the grid does go out during wildfires or whatever, I see that in my garage, I've got enough batteries already <laughs> to power the house for over a week. Mm-hmm. So, and that's even if the sun's not shining. It's just if, if one of the batteries runs out, you drive it to the nearest supercharger and fill it up and drive it back home and start cooking again. So I see that the theoretical potential is there to power the house during any outages just using the car batteries. But technically and from a regulatory perspective, it's not yet possible. So I'm very hopeful that this technology is going to come quickly because I think it solves a lot of the state's problems in terms of the duck curve and mm. having dirty energy on the on the grid. So as a huge storage opportunity, we're supposed to have 5 million electric vehicles by 2030 in California. That's an awful lot of storage capacity that I hope we can get access to. Mm. And I think there's a lot of companies that are moving in that direction. Ford announced with their F-150 Lightning that they'll have bi-directional charging where you can power your house for several days off your truck. So yeah, I hope yeah. it's coming. We've got a Ford Lightning truck on order, and I'll convert my whole fleet to electric trucks as soon as they're available. And the Lightning will be the first one. Yeah, but yeah. it's going to be kind of, the 150 is a little bit on the small side, so because we need usually bigger trucks because we're dragging a lot of stuff around, but we're looking forward to that. And I just read today that Ford's exploring a spinoff of their EV business, or maybe a spinoff of their internal combustion business, which it basically unlocks a lot of value. If Tesla's valued at God knows how many trillions of dollars, Ford's EV business might be valued at a a trillion, and then the rest of the internal combustion business is below that. The markets are crazy right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how do you see the EV manufacturers getting on board with vehicle to grid? I mean, Ford announced bi-directional charging, but I remember seeing a quote from Tesla that they weren't big fans of that. I think maybe because Tesla's selling home batteries themselves, or maybe because they don't want to deplete the car's battery life by using it for stationary purposes. Yeah, I guess I don't I don't really understand their motivation. I imagine they expect that at some point they'll get paid for this and there might be an opportunity for that. There's a lot of ways that homeowners can get paid already for load shifting, for demand response. We talked about Ohm Connect earlier and, mm-hmm. and it's a great service as far as I'm concerned to get paid when you shift loads around. Maybe the car companies can do that as well. I think the battery issue is kind of a red herring that people have thrown out that it's going to reduce your range or your longevity of your car battery just because the power in your house is way, way easier than a jackrabbit start from a stop sign. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah it uses, doesn't use that much power. It doesn't yeah. use that much power. So I think it's more of an issue of getting the regulation right, maybe figuring out the economics more than any pa- Passing issue. the economic money around. We're starting to look at the opportunity for our customers and ourselves with virtual power plants. So when you have, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of batteries in homes, and by coordinating all those together, if the grid here in Silicon Valley ever needs more power, you can pretty much solve local problems exactly. with these lo- virtual power plants controlled locally. So that's good. So the vehicle manufacturers are probably just waiting for the right time to hit up the public utility commissions to say, hey, you know, there's a 100 kilowatt hour battery and we got a thousand of them in this part of this town. Let's figure out how to connect those. 
So that, that's a big opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's coming. There was a wonderful statewide conference about a year ago on vehicle to grid. And there was just so much support from the rational standpoint saying this is going to be a huge resource having all these batteries out there. We should use them to help the grid. Yeah, yeah, that'll get there. All right. What about things that homeowners and businesses can do in their community to, to kind of help electrify? Hey, listeners, what do you encourage them to do to change the political situation locally and, and nationally? Yeah, if there are reach codes being discussed in your city, then please get involved. Some advocacy to help the reach codes. There's always people in every community that don't really like change. So people are upset if you tell them, hey, we might not allow for your gas cooktop at some point in the future. Our town passed an ordinance that we're going to try and end the flow of natural gas to our buildings by 2045. It's a long ways off. But even then, people are worried, taking away their options. But if we're really going to take climate change seriously, we have to get off these fossil fuels. And induction cooktops are a wonderful example of a new technology that is just better in every way than an old gas cooktop. People don't believe it. They don't believe it. It's so hard to convince them. And I mean, I understand restaurants may need gas for a while, but the induction cooktop just works terrifically well. The only thing that my wife and I are still stuck on with gas is we haven't figured out an efficient way to heat up our hot tub. Now, there are heat pumps that will do that, but it's just they're way more expensive for a hot tub and way more use a tremendous amount of electricity and and I don't want to keep the thing hot all the time. So it's a lot easier for us to say, Hey, half an hour before we want to, you know, jump in the hot tub, we just turn the gas on and it's warmed up. Yeah. I think there are cases like this that are just going to take time to figure out. Can't get off gas immediately, obviously, but we can all start. And the the induction cooktop is a great example where there's uh, local nonprofits that are giving out or loaning these induction hobs that you can try out. It's a great way to get started. When we, when we renovated our house and we took everything out of the kitchen, we lived on one of those little portable induction cooktops. I still have it here. They work great. That's all we needed, that plus the microwave. Exactly. Um, (laughs) All right. Well, tell us a little bit about your zero carbon lifestyle. How do you walk the talk? Yeah, so I started getting worried about climate change around 2006 or so. And I'm an engineer, so of course I had to analyze it. So I learned a lot about how to monitor my own carbon footprint and found that I was at about 35 metric tons of carbon emissions per year. And when I analyzed that, it was mostly from flying. So a big portion was lots of travel that we were doing internationally and so forth. So that was a hard one. And I slowly chipped away at it. We took more local vacations, found lots of wonderful places to visit nearby. Started taking train trips around the country, which was wonderful. We're going on a sailing trip in a couple of weeks. And minimizing the carbon footprint of travel was the number one thing. And that had a huge impact. So then it was uh, the house and the cars. I also, we're not eating as much beef, not as much meat is another way to help. So my goal for the past, I guess, about 10 years was to see if I can get down to the UN's target. The UN has claimed for many years that if we're going to live in a sustainable world, by 2050, we all need to emit less than one metric ton of carbon per year per person. So I figured, let's see if I can do that. So bit by bit, I decreased my 35 metric ton emissions rate down to point metric tons last year. So I hit and exceeded the target. My quality of life is fantastic. So it's definitely possible, and it has to do with the choices we make. All right, all right. I think what would be helpful is for people to visualize, like, what's a metric ton, and what's a metric ton of gas? 
because you, you don't see it. You know, but it, it's amazing how much CO2, the weight of CO2 that's generated when you burn a fossil fuel. Oh my it's gosh. more than the weight of the fuel. That's right. The statistic for gasoline is when you burn one gallon of gas, and a gallon of gas weighs about six or seven pounds, when you burn it in your engine, you're producing 19 pounds of CO2, yeah. which doesn't seem to make sense, but it does. That's it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like those heat pumps that are 350% yeah. efficient. Oh, it's all the oxygen that goes into that's the carbon right. that's in the hydrocarbon. There all right. So how can people get in touch with you at Home Energy Analytics? Well, HEA.com is our company domain. You can sign up for the free service if you're a PG&E customer at HI. It stands for Home Intel. HI.HEA.com. You can always email me, Steve at hea.com that works too all right terrific well that's all the time we have on this week's energy show steve thanks for joining us and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in and if you missed any of today's show you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts